and about tonight in confidence in your comfort, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, a couple of months back, um, we had the pleasure of taking uh, my mother-in-law uh, out for her birthday, well, my mother-in-law and my father-in-law. So we decided that we're going to go and take them to a buffet. I mean, what other place can you take someone for a birthday than a good buffet? I mean, there is no place in all the world where uh, on one plate you can have rice, pasta, noodles, steak, uh, seafood, and a roast dinner all in one place. So we decided that we're going to take them to a buffet. And um, on top of that, uh, our uh, elder son, Nathan's, Fifth birthday was quickly approaching, so this was our last opportunity to get all the kids in for free. Um, anyway, enough about the buffet. Uh, when we were well fed and we were uh, leaving the restaurant, we had to exit via the lift for, for this restaurant because we had a pram. And there was also another couple who was leaving at the same time of us, at us, um, and, um, They were approaching the lift first, but when they turned around and uh, saw all seven of us kind of approaching the lift, the expression on the lady's face was just one of utter horror, right? Uh, It was just gold. I mean, I can understand the couple, they were slightly older in age, and the truth is we are still living in the shadow of a global pandemic, but surely our kids didn't look that snotty-nosed. Well... At least not that day, at least. Nonetheless, as she got into the lift, this lady, she started vigorously hitting the closed door button. Like, we could see it. I mean, it was very evident that she was tapping that button. She was looking at the door. She was looking at us and then tapping that button. Uh, I mean, to her relief, um, we did signal, okay, we're going we're gonna to take the next lift. It's fine. Um, but, you know, there was this quite long period of time where we were kind of awkwardly looking at one another as the doors kind of eventually slowly closed. And I wondered whether that closed door button actually worked. (laughs) You know, in the US, they've got legislation, and maybe it's the same here, that requires the lift doors to remain open for a set amount of time so that, you know, people with mobility issues can get in and out of the lift. Um, back in 2004 in New York City, three out of the four pedestrian crossing buttons actually worked. So when you tapped it, eventually uh, it would quickly bring the, you know, the green man up so you can cross the road. But by the time of 2018, traffic conditions had got so bad in New York City that only one in ten of these pedestrian crossing buttons actually work. And the reason that these buttons are left there is because they give people the illusion of control, right? And um, sometimes they're they're referred to as placebo buttons, and they are left there, according to a Harvard psychologist, because it leads people to a sense of control over a situation. You know, in today's passage, the theme of control features quite heavily. We find ourselves today in the latter part of Passion Week, what we call Passion Week, and we know that Jesus' crucifixion is rapidly approaching us now. Also, on top of that, a dark and twisted plot has formed around Jesus, and if anything, the situation that he finds himself in is spiraling out of control. 
And so in the midst of all of this, as we read today's passage, the question that begs to be asked is, who exactly is in control in the midst of this very dark situation? You know, I guess I give you the answer up front by telling you the title of today's message, which is, Creatures May Conspire, But Christ Is In Control. Creatures May Conspire, But Christ Is In Control. And my prayer for all of us today is that we would just lay hold of the wondrous truth that divine control over all things enables faithful stewardship, and is the basis of our sure salvation. Divine control over all things enables faithful stewardship and is the basis of our sure salvation. There's going to be three points this morning. Number one, the illusion of control. Number two, divine control over the details. And number three, divine control over the big picture. Let's read through the passage together. We're going to be reading from... Luke chapter 22, verses 1 to 23. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who is of the number of the twelve. He went away and he conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and and agreed to give him money. So he consented, and he sought an opportunity to betray him to to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where would you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you've entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house. The teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and they found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying... This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. So, you know, where we pick up the story uh, today is in the lead up to one of the most prominent sets of feasts during the Jewish calendar. You've got Passover, and then you've also got the Feast of Unleavened Bread. 
Now, by way of background, I know you guys did a series on Exodus before, but um, by way of background, the origin of these feasts extends more, more than a thousand years back earlier, to the time of Israel's exodus from the land of Egypt. As many of you know, Israel was under the harsh slavery of a pharaoh that was unwilling to let them go. Even though God sent nine devastating plagues upon Egypt. However, the tenth plague, the last plague that God sent, finally secured the release of Israel, was when the Lord struck down the firstborn of all of Egypt. But all of Israel's firstborn were spared as long as they took a lamb, and at twilight they killed the lamb, they took the blood of the lamb, and they painted it above the doorpost of their house. And when the Lord saw the blood over their house, he would mercifully pass over that household. Then for the subsequent seven days after that time, the people of Israel, they ate unleavened bread, so bread with no yeast in it, as a reminder of just how quickly God thrust them out of Egypt. They had no time to leaven the bread, no time to wait for it to rise. So every year since that mighty rescue of God, the people of Israel were meant to remember this experience through the celebration of these two feasts. And this is exactly the occasion that we find ourselves in as we enter into this passage. You know, during Jesus' day, uh, the number of inhabitants in Jerusalem would have been approximately about 70,000 people. But during the time of these feasts, the number of people in, in Jerusalem would swell to about a quarter of a million people. So all these Jewish pilgrims would just flood into the city of Jerusalem. On top of that, you know, if you were a priest, like remember Zechariah at the beginning of the book of Luke? If you were a priest like Zechariah, you were on duty for about two weeks during the whole year. The rest of the year you could do other work. But during this time, during the feasts, Every priest in the land was on call in Jerusalem. They had to do preparations. They were busy with it. There was no calling in sick, right? So I guess the backdrop or the, I guess the atmosphere that I'm trying to paint for you here in the city of Jerusalem is where there was a real buzz going on in the city, right? And there'll be pilgrims all around. The priesthood would be all busy at work. There would have been a somewhat celebratory mood in the city. There would also be a cleansing out of leaven or yeast from your home. So you find the yeast and you get rid of it. And also that was symbolic of a time where people would be searching their own hearts for whether there's sin in their lives so that they could have a clear conscience before God as they entered into this time of feasts. And yet despite this atmosphere that was in Jerusalem, This is what we read in verse number two. And the chief priest and the scribes were seeking how to put Jesus to death, for they feared the people. I mean, this is not just a ragtag bunch of troublemakers spoiling for a fight. This is the spiritual elite of Israel, the chief priests, the top rabbinic lawyers, And what are they doing? They ought to have been more concerned about the preparations for the feast, but they are so consumed 
in an eerie way with their desire to kill the Lamb of God. Any sense of festivities now were increasingly overshadowed by this murderous spirit in the air. You see, as Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem, he now faced off not just against the Pharisees, but against the religious elite, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders. In their minds, how dare Jesus come into our city to cleanse our temple? How dare he speak out against us in the parable of the wicked talents? How dare he rebuke us about our views on the resurrection? How dare he portray our learned scribes as self-absorbed? How dare he go and teach daily in our temple? In their minds, Jesus was out of control. For hundreds of years, they were the ones that regulated the spiritual climate in Israel. For hundreds of years, they were the ones that controlled the running of the temple. They were the ones who delicately controlled the relationship with the Romans. But Jesus was disturbing their equilibrium. And they were incensed. And they were resolved to, quote, destroy him. But they faced a bit of a problem, for they feared the people. You know, despite the popular notion that everyone was united against Jesus, this is just not the case. A lot of the pilgrims who traveled alongside Jesus up to Jerusalem, actually, they quite liked Jesus. They were the ones who were sitting at Jesus' feet while he was teaching at the temple. So the problem was they couldn't just storm in and just arrest Jesus, right? If they did that, they would seriously risk an uprising or a riot just before the feast. But despite this problem, they did find a solution to the problem. They did find a way to control the situation. Verses 3 to 6 tells us that Satan entered into Judas, who was of the number of the 12. He went away and he conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him in the absence of a crowd. Suddenly, two additional characters enter the plot. Satan and Judas. Right? You know, the last time that we hear about Satan is all the way back in chapter 4 when he was tempting Jesus in the wilderness. Right? And Luke leaves us with a chilling description of how the devil left Jesus. It says here in Luke chapter 4, verse 13, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Until an opportune time. And now indeed was an opportune time. It was an opportune time because not only had the religious elite worked themselves into a murderous frenzy, but now had Judas, a willing subject of Satan's influence, Judas, who is part of Jesus' inner circle. Judas, who basically knew the whereabouts of Jesus at every hour of the day. Maybe, Maybe Judas was disillusioned with Jesus. Maybe it was greed for money. Maybe his motive was that he could win favor in the eyes of the religious elite. Whatever his motive was, it was clear that Jesus didn't fit into 
Judas's mold for what a Messiah should look like. So what did he do? He took matters into his own hands. He took matters into his own hands and he sold Jesus out for what amounted to be a, a mere month's worth of wages. You know, looking in on this situation at the moment that is centered around Jesus, if there was ever an axis of evil at work, it is here. You've got the religious elite, you've got the traitor, and you've got the prince of darkness. This is a bad situation. They're scheming, they're conspiring, they're contriving together. The religious elite, what do they believe? They believe that they could get rid of this imposter called Jesus once and for all. Judas thought he could cash out on what was what he thought was three wasted years with Jesus and to gain favor with the religious elites. And Satan believed that he could deal a fatal blow to God's kingdom, to God's son, and to God's purposes. But it's worth just pausing for a moment to consider how we ourselves respond when we are in a situation where things seem to be out of control where things just seem to be, you know, spiraling away from us? How do we respond in situations like this? Do we try even harder to seize control of the situation? Do we try to fix the situation by our own strength, by our own means? When there is turmoil in our lives, are we trying to frantically fix them ourselves? Have we bought into the age-old lie that we are masters of our own destiny? I mean, one of the easiest ways that I personally assess whether I'm like this and I am like this is to see how I react when a situation is out of control. Do I feel angry? Do I feel disheartened? Do I lash out at others? Am I upset at God? Of course, what we have on display in this passage is a very extreme example of how the desire for control can manifest in its ugliest form. It is an extreme example. Of course, the situations that we face are going to be different from this. But nonetheless, this account gives us a sobering glimpse of how the kingdom of darkness works with its bloated sense of its own strength, its own ability to fix circumstances, devoid of any understanding of the purposes of God, devoid of any understanding of God's sovereignty. But you may be questioning now, so what are you then proposing, Austin, that I don't take hold of my responsibilities in life, that I don't try to address the situations that I find myself in? No, I'm not saying that. But my hope is that in the next two points of the sermon, that it gives us the confidence and also the comfort that we can relinquish this illusion of control over our lives, yet still faithfully steward the responsibilities that we've been given. So moving on to point number two, point number two, divine control over the details. So now we've seen that, you know, in the backdrop, there is this evil plan going on around the feast, around Jesus. But let's focus in on what Jesus actually does when the feast day arrives. We're now looking at verses 
verses 7 to 13. Firstly, Jesus instructs Peter and John to go and prepare the Passover for the disciples, to which Peter and John respond with a totally legitimate question, right? They ask him, where will you have us prepare it? Remember, a quarter of a million people have now packed into the city of Jerusalem. And Jewish tradition stated that if you want to celebrate the Passover properly, you've got to celebrate it within the city wars. So the option of just going to a nice villa on the hillside overlooking Jerusalem just isn't an option. No, everyone is looking for somewhere in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast. So looking for a place to celebrate the feast on that day is kind of like trying to make a booking for dinner at Circular Quay on the day of New Year's Eve. It just ain't going to happen, right? But not so with Jesus. This is when things start to go a little bit James Bond for Peter and John. It's like a scene pulled out of, have you guys seen the movie Tinker Tailor, Soldier Spy? It's a great spy movie. And um, Jesus says to them, Jesus says to them, Behold, when you've entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you an upper room furnished, prepare it there. So in other words, Jesus wants them to enter the most crowded city in the area, brimming with people, and in the midst of the crowds, there's going to be this mysterious man with a water jar that's going to recognize them and then um, and then meet them. And they're basically supposed to follow this man to this other man's house, this master of this other house, and this master of the house is supposed to know exactly the plans and show them a large furnished upper room. Now, on so many occasions throughout Luke's gospel, when we hear and we see what the disciples do and say, we're thinking, oh dear, these guys, they just don't get it. You know, they've really just messed up again. But not so in this case. This case is different. Actually, if I imagine myself in their situation, I reckon I would have done a lot worse. I would have peppered Jesus with a ton of questions. I mean, Jesus, what if the man with the water jar isn't there, or he misses us, or he doesn't recognize us? Or what if there's several men walking around with a water jar? What if this man takes us to the wrong house? What if he takes us to the right house, and when we get to the right house, the man doesn't recognize us? The master has no idea what's going on. What if there's other rabbis in the city, and the other rabbis, they want to meet with with their disciples too? Shouldn't we at least drop drop your name, Jesus, and not just say, the teacher, right? I would have had a ton of questions, but Peter and John, what do they do? They do no such thing. We read in the next verse, and they went and they found it's just as he told, and they prepared the Passover. Two things to notice here. Firstly, they went and they prepared the Passover. In other words, Peter and John were sent, so Peter and John went. Their going was established by Jesus' speaking. Isn't this just a wonderful picture of faithful stewardship? Without Jesus' instructions, their venture into the city would just be a stab-in-the-dark attempt to try to find a place for the feast. But because of Jesus' words, it provided them the necessary confidence to go out and do the task that they were given. You know, over a year ago, yeah, over a year ago now, Ivy and I um, were actively considering the option that I resign from my job 
so that I could start theological studies and to more seriously entertain the possibility of pastoral ministry. And as, as we were doing so, um, I was calculating on this spreadsheet, I love spreadsheets, um, whether we could make this work financially. And as the, the time for a decision drew near, I found myself spending more and more time in that spreadsheet, trying to find assurance in the numbers. And it was around this time that a brother in Christ came up to me, and he simply just said to me, look, Austin, if the Lord is sending you out, if he indeed is sending you out, he will provide for you as you step out. If he's sending you, he's responsible for you. And as I heard that, there was a great sense of peace that came over me. A greater sense of peace than any figure in that spreadsheet could have given me. You know, actually, after it was announced to my work team that I was going to re- uh, resign from my, from my role at, 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 my, at my work, one of my colleagues, he was a Christian colleague from the U.S., he sent me just a very simple email. And it had a picture of Charles Spurgeon, the famous preacher in it, and a quote in this email which simply read this, I have all things and abound. Not because I have a good store of money in the bank, not because I have skill and wit with which to win my bread, but because the Lord is my shepherd. But because the Lord is my shepherd. And it was just such a timely encouragement for us as we stepped out into the unknown. And so whatever it is that you are called to in this life, whatever assignment that the Lord has given you, in all the ways in which we are called to go, the bedrock of our confidence must be founded upon what God has said. In other words, what God says gives us the confidence to go. It is this principle that transforms our posture from one of craving control to a posture of simply faithful stewardship. The second thing to note from this text are the words that really succinctly describe the outcome of all this. Verse 13, and they went and they found it just as Jesus had told them. No mention of backup plans. No mention of Peter and John having to troubleshoot a failed rendezvous. Simply that they found it just as he had told them. Now, Bible commentators, they can't agree whether Jesus had prearranged for this or to be set up like this, or maybe it was a miraculous arrangement to begin with. But it doesn't really matter because the take-home point is the same. It affirms divine control over the details, even the finest of details. It stands in you know, complete contrast to the illusion of control that Judas, the chief priest, the scribes, and Satan thought that they had. Jesus is seen here as being in total command of circumstances, in total control of timing, of responses and of outcomes. He is in total control. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs on your head are all numbered. 
You know, I love the testimony. A lot of you have heard of, heard it before of our brother David in, in, in Ollie and Nelly's uh, gospel community. You know, having already had his immigration application miraculously fast-tracked by nearly two years, right, he then starts to ponder, David starts to ponder about the reality of the existence of God. So he's starting to think about these things. And you know, as he boards the plane to come to Australia, he is seated next to one, another Polish man, but this Polish man happens to be a Christian. And not just a Christian, from the very beginning of the flight, this man already has his Bible open. So David's thinking, boy, this is going to be a long flight next to this Christian guy, right? And so they start talking about the gospel during the flight. But after a long flight, David thinks, oh, good, I can at least step away from this conversation now. But then as he arrives at the immigration processing center and he's assigned a dormitory, who does he have to share his room with? This Christian man again. And by God's grace, David is saved through that process. Oh, brothers and sisters, you know, the extensive way in which God controls and touches every aspect of detail in our human existence should be a great source of comfort and confidence for us. It relieves us for the need for control. And it assigns us the simple yoke of faithful stewardship. But it's not only divine control over the details that is on display here. But my last point is that what is on display here is also divine control over the big picture. Now, firstly, let me just give you a really quick background of what a Passover meal actually looks like in Jesus' day. Okay, so this is, this is a, a quick summary. This is what happened. Firstly, there would be, you know, the, the father of the house or the head of the house or the rabbi would begin with giving a blessing. And what you've got to remember is there's going to be four cups of wine during the course of a Passover meal. And each of these cups of wine are linked to the four I will statements of Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 to 7. It should come up on the screen, but you'll see that there are four I will statements uh, in there. And each cup of wine correlates to one of these. So the first cup of wine is then poured, and it is linked to the first I will statement. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Then what they'll do is they'll take some bitter herbs, they'll dip it in some salt water, they'll eat it together. And that's a reminder of the bitterness and the tears that they cried when they were under slavery in Egypt. Then the second cup of wine is poured, and then there will be a retelling of Israel's history from Abraham all the way to Moses, right? Psalms 113 and 114 will be sung as a hymn. Then this second cup was linked to the second I will statement. I will deliver you from slavery to them. And in response to that, they will eat the lamb, they will break the bread, they'll have the unleavened bread, and um, they'll have some sweet dip, and they'll drink the second cup of wine. Then after this, the third cup of wine is poured. And this third cup of wine is linked to the third I will statement. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. Then the fourth cup is poured, and it's linked to that final I will statement. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. Then Psalms 115 to 118 will be sung 
as a closing hymn. And that's the evening. That's the Passover in the evening. That's what happens normally. If anything, the whole Passover meal was meant as a reminder of the mighty hand of God. The mighty hand of God in bringing, you know, making a nation out of one man, Abraham, and one barren woman, Sarah. It was a reminder of them to taste again the bitterness of the years in, in Egypt, but also to remind them of the mighty hand of God who lifted them out. It was a reminder of the fact, it was a sensory reminder of the fact that God was in total control over the ebb and flow of all history, over rulers, over nations, but specifically that he was in total control over the story of salvation. So when Jesus celebrated this Passover, right, it was all of these things that I mentioned, but it was also different. It was also more than that this time. This time was different. You know, Jesus even hints at the beginning of his meal that this is going to be different. You see, when he begins the meal, he doesn't start with the usual blessing. What he says is, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. A literal translation of this is, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover meal with you. So this is an expression, it's a double expression of his desire to eat this meal with, with them. Not only that, but listen to what Jesus says in the next verse. For I tell you, I will not eat of this until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. In other words, something big is happening tonight. Something momentous is occurring. This will be such a big moment that Jesus will refrain from eating this meal again until the kingdom of God arrives in its fullness. And then again in verse 18, Jesus says that he's not going to drink of the fruit of the vine again until the kingdom of God comes. Can you see what Jesus is doing here? Can you see what Jesus is doing? Every Passover that the disciples have ever celebrated always looks backwards in time. It always looks backward in time. But this night, Jesus says to them, take a glimpse of the future. Look forward in time. Do you know what I'm saying? So they normally look back in time, but for the first time, Jesus gives them a glimpse of the future. What does that mean? That means that that night was a turning point. It's a turning point in redemptive history. Right? And to confirm this, what Jesus does next is absolutely incredible. During the meal, Jesus takes the bread, and after giving thanks for the bread, he gives it to each of his disciples, and he says, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. For 1,500 years, there has been only one interpretation of the unleavened bread. Just one. It was a reminder of the speed with which God pulled Israel out of Egypt. Hence, there was no time for leavening the bread. But that night was a turning point. Jesus takes this bread. He doesn't point back to the Exodus, but he points to himself. It's different, isn't it? Jesus is reinterpreting this age-old tradition and giving it a new and final meaning. I'm not sure if you've seen this unleavened bread before. You can actually buy it in the shops. Probably if you go to the Jewish shops, you can buy it. It's called matzah. It's a flat bread because it's got no leaven in it, so it doesn't rise. And over the centuries, and it's still the case now if you buy it, 
you would see that there are lines striped into this flatbread, right? Not only are there lines in this flatbread, if you buy it today, you would see that there's holes in this matzah, right? And so I just want you just to imagine for a second, you're there, you've received one of these broken pieces of unleavened bread. But going forward, when you hold this piece of bread as a disciple, no longer are you supposed to think back of the Exodus, but it's going to be totally centered upon the person of Christ. His body, unleavened, symbolic of the fact that it was free from any sin, yet only in a few hours' time will be striped with the lashes of a Roman whip. Holes pierced in his hands, his feet, his side, broken for our iniquities. But not only that, remember how I explained that the Passover meal consisted of four cups of wine, each linked with the four different I will promises of God from Exodus chapter 6. Well, look in verse 19 and 20. After they had eaten, Jesus now takes this third cup of wine and he says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now remember, the third cup of wine was linked to that third I will promise. What is that third I will promise? I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. For 1,500 years, as a Jew, when you picked up this third cup of wine, images of God's redemption of Israel will flash forth in your mind. Images of the plagues, the judgments, but most of all, images of God when he opened up the Red Sea and with an outstretched arm, he pulled Israel to safety, redeeming them for themselves. But again, this night was different. This night was a turning point. Jesus takes this third cup of wine and instead he points to himself. He again is reinterpreting this age-old custom, and he's giving it a new and final meaning. For in less than 24 hours, Jesus knows that he's going to be nailed to a cross with outstretched arms, with outstretched arms, to take upon himself the judgment of God for our sins, crying out when he's nailed to that cross, it is Finished, redeeming us decisively and completely. Under the old paradigm, Moses would throw the blood of animals upon the people to confirm the basis of their relationship with God. But Jesus, what he's saying here is not so anymore. When you drink this cup, remember that the new basis of your relationship with God is now through my blood, which was poured out for you. And just in case we miss just how definitive this moment is, Jesus then borrows the language from the prophet Jeremiah, who 500 years prior to this time prophesied that, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In other words, Jesus is basically saying that evening, that the days are no longer coming, the day has arrived. Oh friends, the Passover meal is just a vivid reminder of God's total control over the story of salvation. 
But what Jesus did that evening was declare that the unfolding story of salvation was entering its final chapter. There was only one man who was willing. There was only one man who was able. There was only one man who could bear the weight of this burden. There was only one man who could lift and turn the page of the story of salvation. There was only one man who is worthy to unroll the scroll of the saga of redemption. And he was the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the root of David. He is the lamb of God, Jesus Christ. You see, brothers and sisters, Jesus was not unaware of the plots against him. Neither was he afraid of these plots. No, Jesus adamantly and intentionally holds his Passover within the city walls of Jerusalem. He willfully steps into the jaws of the lion. He even dines at the same table as the betrayer. He obediently accepts his place in God's story of salvation. He presses forward in the story with prophetic precision. And he even declares in verse 22, the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. And through all of this, do you know the wonderful thing that we catch a glimpse of? We catch a glimpse of Jesus' heart. Brothers and sisters, he doesn't do any of this reluctantly or unwillingly. No, he says, I have earnestly desired this Passover, to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And there is great suffering for Jesus around the corner. But it doesn't in any way decrease the intensity which he longs for fellowship with his disciples then and fellowship with his disciples now. It is his heart's desire to accomplish all that the Lord's Supper now represents. It was from the overflow of his heart that he gives himself for our redemption. Verse 19, this is my body which is given for you. Verse 20, this cup that is poured out for you. O church, let us not forget Let us not forget that it was for the joy. It was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. So then, let me ask you, church. Does there remain a shadow of a doubt that God is in control over the big picture? That God is in command of every page of the story of salvation? No, friends. Jesus himself told us, no one, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Friends, I've said a lot uh, this morning, so let me just bring us to a close. You know, if your perception of reality understands that life is often filled with dark and broken situations, but is void of an understanding of a God who controls the details, a God who is in control over the big picture, then it only makes sense that you keep grasping for control in your life because you have no anchor for your soul. But, brothers and sisters, this is not us. This is not us. 
our eyes have been opened to the reality that God is in control of the details, God is in control of the big picture, and God has a heart that is so desirously inclined to redeem us unto himself that he stepped into the center of the story of salvation. Therefore, let our lives be marked with a faithful, confident stewardship and a great comfort in his saving work. For I am sure that neither light, death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father and gracious God, there are times we admit that things seem out of control. And so often we try to grasp them and fix them by our own power and our own might. But Lord, today, through the institution of the Lord's Supper, we just step back and we see your grand control over all aspects of our lives. We see your grand control in all the details of our lives. And this is what gives us confidence to step out in faithful stewardship. This is what gives us confidence to send the Wood family out in trust and in comfort that they will continue serving and loving you because you have loved and redeemed them. And so, Father, we just come to you with a heart of great awe and a heart of great comfort before you, thanking you for your goodness towards us and your rule and your reign over all things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.